Well, I love the Pope. He's a good man, Andy Pope. And uh, <laughs> I can't tell you, you just got to talk to him, you know, and you'll know what, you, what I mean. Have a conversation with Andy Pope. Well, it's another podcast. Just call picking it out. Yeah, it's another podcast, y'all. Just call picking it out. Yeah, we got the one and only Tom Scarrett in the house. Yeah, and we're gonna be picking it out. Okay, okay, right here. Hey, y'all. <laughs> well, you know whose voice that is. And my name is Andrew Pope. And thank y'all once again for tuning in for another episode here. And we've got a uh, we've got a legend here on the show today. I'm real, real happy he agreed to come on the show. We're going to have some fun. This guy's been nominated for Golden Globes and Emmys multiple times. He's won an Emmy. Uh, just a really brilliant actor, I think. I've always thought a lot of this guy and his work. Uh, so we got Mr. Tom Skerritt. Well, thank you. How's thank it going? You. Going right you know, one foot in front of the other. Yeah, that's better than behind. So you get tripped up there. <laughs> or, or pointing upwards. <laughs> yeah, we, that's even worse, I suppose. Yeah. So you're in... Keep uh, those feet on the earth. You're in uh, Washington, you said, right? Yeah, Seattle. How's it out there? Well, it's a little gloomy right now, but uh, we've had some pretty good weather. I think this is the best place to be in the summer. because We don't really have humidity. Like you guys do the whole west, the whole east. I oh, grew yeah. up in uh, in the Middle West, so always buggy and hot, and it stays on you at night. And mm-hmm. here it's pretty nice. Y'all had any rain lately? We don't get much. May may get a little rain to, uh, later today, but that's going to be it for the summer, pretty much. For some reason, it's unseasonably cool for us right now i don't know why but that's it's going to get heated up normally i mean your shirt sticks to you when you walk outside here in july but not that i'm complaining i mean it's kind of been nice it is unusual it's climate change i guess i guess so i think uh you said you grew up in the midwest yeah what part michigan detroit Oh, old Detroit. That's a fun place. Did a few shows around Detroit. Well, it was when I left. I haven't been back there much to know. I don't have anybody left to it back there to visit. Nothing to go back to, I guess. <clears throat> no. How how long's that been since you left there? Back in the sixties when I went out to UCLA to go to school. Oh wow. Become a writer, screenwriter. <laughs> 
which I still do. I'm still writing. I never stop. Well, that's awesome because that's that's one of those things that, you know I've talked about with people. It, you to continuously be writing every day is you know like sharpening the pen kind of thing. It, it's for your mind, for your brain. It does really. It does wonders. I think. You know. Yeah, I often would get so involved and so drawn into whatever I'm writing that I, I, uh, I get a job, an acting job, and I'd say, "Oh my God, I can't! I got to get this writing done. I can't." Oh, <laughs> wait a minute! That's how I make a living out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've had those mo- those crazy moments where, what should I be doing? Uh-huh. Well, both. But first, I got to go out and make. I got to pay the rent. Yeah. I know a lot of a lot of artist friends of mine, they're songwriters too, you know, and the songwriting's really a lot of the the love part of it for some of them. Me, I got to have the stage too. You know, I get that I crave that uh audience, that feel, you know, that 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 feeling of like you're helping somebody get through something. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a sort of a, I don't know about helping anybody when I'm in theater, which I used to do, um, but there is an opening up of a rapport between a live audience and on stage that, that doesn't exist in a theater or anywhere else but there. A live audience is not just one big harmony. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it it really is and it it's sometimes it's the only place you can feel at home i feel like yeah in a weird way you know yeah uh, you keep up the work and and you get the rapport with your audience that way you know and you do it best you can and it usually works out pretty well well did you always have a love for acting and you know the theater the arts in general you know, I never really did as a kid. I grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood, and, and uh, I will say the first awakening I had at all as a kid was music. I had an older brother who'd stay home, and my parents were out for the night. And to keep himself from getting bored, he'd play music, and he'd play, like, some really classical music. I mean, really, like, Puccini to Charlie Parker to Ella Fitzgerald and... Uh, you know, some of the best yeah. uh, people uh, and from classical and into popular music. While jazz was not necessarily popular, but he played the best jazz. So I really got all that sense of the dignity of both these farms, uh, both these uh, types of classical music and, and jazz, which was an American invention. And, and, and that was a very uh, specific kind of music back in those days there's not much of it now i'm sure there is but uh, i don't hear it much no there it's just everything has changed so much with music any genre just pick one you know it's yeah it's it's totally different world now i love uh, fats waller and uh old jazz stuff man i mean that's timeless you know ain't misbehaving I mean, it's uh, Richie Havens, yeah, yeah. I love that. 
So there was so much stuff that was going on in the 60s and 70s. It was really, really good music. Really good music. Oh, yeah. I haven't caught up to some of the stuff that's going on now. Uh, I'm still I'm still trying not to catch up to it, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> you know, back in the 60s, Muscle Shoals was one of the big places that Etta James and uh, Wilson Pickett, you know, all these people were coming to. Uh, they really had something going on. That document, have you seen that Muscle Shoals documentary? I have not. It's fantastic. Really good. Um, I think it, it used to be on Netflix. I watched it when it came out. I think it came out around 2013 or 2014. If you like music and um, that kind of thing, you would you would appreciate that, I think. It's really yeah, good. I, I like Willie and all the boys. Oh but, yeah. Uh, so how did how did the you, you you said it was music was really the first kind of thing that turned your head? How did it go from there? Around the same time that I was uh, digesting the music that I was hearing and the good taste my brother was sharing with me, though I don't think he ever really knew that he was going to hit me the way he did. Uh, yeah. And um, there was once in the public school, they had creative classes for kids between five and 10. And they would have a bus that would take us once Saturday a month in the morning to creative venues so we could experience great genius and painting and all that. And I remember getting out off the bus at the Detroit Institute of Art. And uh, the first thing I see is Rodin's the, Scul- the Thinker sitting out in the front. And I go up and I circle the statue, looking at it, thinking naked guy sitting on a toilet without a sports section. <laughs> Grumpy. And that was my first take on it. You know, <laughs> so you go inside and you see a huge, uh, it had a big open atrium in the museum. And I'd see, I saw this huge mural painted by Diego Rivera. And it, the power, even though it was obviously embedded with socialist and communist suggestions, it was the power of the painting that got me. I had no idea about politics. I could care less about that at that age, you know, seven, eight years old. And uh, it, it still is in my visual memory. I remember what, how it looked and the way it looked and the way it moved me. So I didn't take much uh, beyond that other than your subconscious holds on to that stuff. And your imagination is, is broadened. The frame of reference for your imagination is broadened by having these experiences that you know are just moving, but you don't know why. And it doesn't matter because somehow now your intelligence is going to hang on to those things. So that when you're older, you say, ah, now I get it. And that's the glory of having an imagination, which sets it apart from other animals is what it gives you in terms of what no one else, nothing else alive gets what we get. And we've, unfortunately, we've lost those programs for kids now. Uh, and I, I think that's really uh, a big, big mistake that's been going on for about 35, 40 years now, where they've taken all these programs out and called them non-essentials. Yeah. And any, school, any teacher that's listening to this broadcast is going to say, yeah, 
it's more important than they think. They know that by uh, through doing the research, that kids who are not doing well in a particular class improve their ability in those classes by having creative classes, yeah. which just simply guide your gu- that emerging scary thing called the imagination. It guides it, and we've lost that. And I think it's showing up in this country right now. Yeah, that's a really good point. We have lost that. Um, You know, I I think there's still a lot of creativity uh, out there. I think a lot of the parents just don't encourage it either. I feel like a, a while back it was encouraged a little bit more uh, maybe just for the sake of, hey, you never know what could happen out of this one day, you know. I don't know. It's, But, it, yeah, it's not – it's one of them things you kind of have to dig around for when you get older, I feel like, now. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's where curiosity begins in the awakening of an imagination. You know, as a kid, you just got – you don't know what to make of these things. I mean, no one's going to change your diaper anymore, you know. So you got to <laughs> right. look out for yourself, and you got to do, got to check things out. Things that are not going to kill you or maim you have to be explored. Because I, I've, I've lived long enough to know there is no real right or wrong or bad or good. Only thinking makes it so. Yeah. And those things are not going to do damage on you. You got to. It's a frame of reference. You don't have to hold it. You don't have to love it. You have to know what it is. And that's really what we're missing in this country, I think. I do, too. I completely agree 100%. Uh, how, did you, how did you get into the actual business? The acting thing? The acting, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I was right out of high school. I, knew, I had to get out of Detroit. Um, <clears throat> and I can't explain why, but I think part of that awakening to more things than the life I was living. I mean, watching, I have to say one of those events where the bus, the school bus took us down to a venue, a creative venue was a rehearsal one morning of the Detroit symphony orchestra, which I didn't know what that was. And some Italian guy named Arturo Toscanini was going to, who has turned out to be the great conductor of the 20th century. And his old age, Barely able to get out physically out to the middle of it. And he just, he was all dressed in white. His hair was shooting in every direction. White shoes, white socks, everything was white. And he just ambled out there and he managed to get up in front of the uh, orchestra and he yelled at them a little bit and nodded. Then he lifted the baton very slowly and he just suddenly straightened out to be about 30 years old. It looked like he was 30 years old suddenly because his posture was so good. And he ripped his, he just put his arms down and ripped the sound out from the orchestra that just knocked me out. I'd never heard such 75 instruments playing all at once, and it was all in one. It just all put it together in a way that I could not. And these experiences don't happen for kids anymore. No. But they just said to me, there's another world out there beyond just this factory community here. Absolutely. And I somehow or another knew I had to get out. So I, I joined the service for four years and went out to UCLA to be a writer, I thought. 
And that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you are, you are a writer. Yeah. Yeah. And director. I'm directed too. Yeah. You've, you've kind of done it all. Um, what, what, how long did it take when you actually first started auditioning, you know, to get that first significant role? Well, I'll back up a little bit on that because I, the writing, if I was, I saw Citizen Kane in a, in a movie, in a film class. Great movie. And uh, still one of the top two ever made. And I just, it was so different, so unusual, so overwhelming, so engaging that I said, I want to write, I set my bar for that. I got to write and direct that. And, but if I'm going to write for an actor, I've got to know what it feels like. You know, the creative process is what you do on your guitar. You're not going to know what your chords are going through. You know, it's, it's what I love about jazz. You never knew where John Coltrane John Coltrane would go. Yeah. Or, or a great guitar player. You know, they just, you know. And um, Billy Ray Vaughn. Oh, my God. You know, so you got all of this kind of stuff around you, and you hear all of this stuff. And um, Anyway, it's all feeling. It all comes from that stuff that was ignited from a, being a little kid and having your imagination guided in some way. Yes. So that you trust your sense, you, you trust your impulses, because it's all informed by imagination. I, I think it was uh, I, uh, Arthur uh, Einstein, I think, had said, the imagination is more important than intelligence. And uh, it was just true because that, that our imagination feeds our intelligence. Sure. And it's one thing to be smart, and it's another thing to be intelligent. The intelligence holds the information. Smart is having a linear view of any one thing that you don't really mess with too much. Anyway, there I am saying, if I'm going to write for uh, an actor, I've got to know what it feels like. So I um, <clears throat> thought, well, I should do some theater. I should act, undirect or whatever it was, all of it, because I was getting a little bit of that in college. But the acting thing was, uh, that was scary for me because I, I'm not, a, I'm basically shy and I did not, I'm not comfortable getting in front of people and giving a speech or anything like that. But here was that challenge. It wasn't going to kill me or maim me. The only thing is it would kind of belittle me and my ego and all that, but I had to go through that challenge and I had to feel what it was, the daring of it. And that's really how it started. It happened that I had talent, which I didn't know, for painting and writing and all of this sort of stuff. But that, the acting was something uh, that just uh, opened up a whole whole world for me. And because I, then I'm some guys come see me in a play, and I know I'm going on a bit, but see me acting in a play, and they want me to be in a dollar ninety eight movie. And I thought, well, hell, I can learn about you know, what it feels like, and only by doing it and watching good actors. Yeah. Well, it happened, there were some other actors, one was Robert Redford, another was Sidney Pollack, before he was a director, and that's where their relationships started. And a TV director saw me acting and said, well, why don't you come on and do a lot? I'm directing a TV show, come on over and 
So that's how it started. And I'll go on a little bit more by saying that TV director, I thought quite a bit about him. He was really an interesting cat. And I followed with him, mentored with him. Uh, right up until one year, he calls me and says, hey, uh, I've got a picture to direct, and it's MASH. Oh, wow. So this is one of the great filmmakers that I stumbled into this stuff. Yeah. Robert Altman, you know, and it went on from there. It just wasn't that I was looking for an agent or anything else. It kind of came to me. Um, again, I think a lot of that stuff is being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I've I've had similar experiences to that in the music business. Uh, Yeah. It's kind of the same. Yeah. You know, it's all art. Uh, You're around interesting people. You kind of, you feed off of their energy and their vibe, and you kind of find your own somewhere in the middle there over time and experience. Yeah, you risk it. Take the risk of it, you know, of doing Big time. Um, I was just listening to Billy Ray this morning, just listening to some things. He was gone. I just had to shut my eyes and move with it, you know, because it was, I don't know if many people really listen to music the way they, oh, I, again, I was, it was unusual because I had been listening to it from when I was five, six years old, listening to great music with my brother. So, you know, it's that, and then Tos Toscanini, doing what he did to my imagination. It wasn't a flight. It just flew away. So I don't think and if you don't listen to music, you're missing a rhythm that just, we, we walk left, right every day, and that's rhythm. And you swing your hands and your arms. That's rhythm, man. And it ultimately is freeing if you're alert to that. So you walk better. And st- I'm, getting old so i sometimes have a little dizzy stuff you know i can't move the way i used to and yet i'm not going to let down on it you know i'm going to keep on moving yeah. until it's over yeah you got to <laughs> <laughs> you got to yeah i mean that's a great philosophy philosophy of yeah life. it really comes i think it really comes with music you know? love of music yeah and to your point I don't think that a lot of people do listen to music in that way. When you were describing that, you took me there. I mean, I could see, I could see what you were seeing, you know, uh, I could, I could feel how strong that moment was for you in your life. I could tell just by hearing you tell it. That's a powerful thing. You know, people are so tuned out now too. I feel like, um, that's not a good thing. No, no, they're more caught up in making more money than the other guy. And I think the minute you get overloaded with a business head, you got to have both. Yeah. There's a balance. And I think right now we're just, uh, politically and business wise, we're just a little, well, more than we're in not great shape right now. I mean, there's got to be a convergence of both beliefs. People don't understand. You've got to talk to each other. You can't continue to buy, point fingers, and both parties are doing that. We don't want to get into politics. But right. 
Yeah. Neither of them are functioning well. Yeah, I, I could. Uh, I love America, but I could really give a shit about the politics, man. I'm so over that. You know. Oh yeah. I just want people. To, I, I just want to love, okay. everybody to love each other. I didn't include you. Sorry. On this email that I just sent this yeah. about uh, sponsorship packages. She talking to you? Uh, it's on me. Was she talking to you? Oh, that's my wife. Just oh. walking by, scolding oh. my daughter. Oh, hello, wife. <laughs> uh, she just walked by the door. She's too busy doing oh. the scolding. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm not the one she's scolding because she scolds really well. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <that's>, yeah. <laughs> you married? Yeah. Yeah, you married last year. I don't have any, but but she's got three girls, and they're they're great. They're little angels, yeah. and she raised them. So she raised them right. Uh, going back to the mash thing. Yeah, did you have any idea, you know, what that was going to be as you were doing that? Yeah, I did because of all, having mentored with Altman for about five years prior to that, he talked about things in a way that I just never conceptualized, like how to get laughter from people by doing something that's so boring that you continue to do it, and you continue to do it, and Love you just start that. breaking into laughing. You know, it doesn't make any sense, but on the other hand, it's it's saying, I'm going to do this until you kind of reach a point where all you got is a laugh and it's just um, what a lot what was done with MASH is he had three cameras shooting uh, the whole thing and microphones everywhere <clears throat> and it, it, nothing was ever shot that way and uh, the studio hated the film mm-hmm. they wanted to fire him but it was so low low budget that and they had only two weeks left. And it was just, okay, let's close it down. You can finish shooting the thing, but we're not going to release it. They just did not get it at all. But that's part of being too much about the money. Yeah. And not the heart. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you'd look at that piece like the way the audiences did or the way the, way the reviewers actually. Because the only way he was able to get it out was managed to get the critics only to come into a theater in New York for one night. And the next day they just raved about the, uh, this is, this is new, this is new cinema. Basically. This mm-hmm. is, this is what we should be doing right now. I know. That kind of humor that's done in the face of death and, you know, doctors working in a, in a battle zone and, uh, so that's uh, all of that was foreseeable from my mentoring with him. Right. Did you watch the the series after that? I, I watched one show. I don't watch much TV to tell you the truth. So I didn't really. Eleven years it was a. It was a long time. Interestingly, the um, suicide is painless. The song that plays the beginning and end of it. Yeah. <clears throat> the, the words were written by his thirteen, his then thirteen-year-old son. Oh my! Bob came in one morning and had this on a piece of paper, and he read the the, the lyrics. 
And then, uh, so every time there was a mass show on, the kid gets a thousand bucks over 11 years yeah. every week. <laughs> so he made more money in the studio. That's amazing. I did yeah. not know that that's where those lyrics came from. Wow. That's so young to be. It's so scary, though, that a kid would write about that. Uh, it makes you wonder. Because that came from somewhere, you know? Uh, man. That's, I love yeah, that song. Uh, we, I've had two kids going through 13. I have one right now going through a 13-year-old. They're somewhere else. And it's a lot of depression, highs and lows. and So I think it came from that. That period of falling, falling into being an adult. Oh, I see. That's uh, that's really a telling story right there. I've I've never I've never heard that. Um, when you did all the you did all the western, you did like Gunsmoke, Bonanza. You you had some guest spots and on a lot of those. <clears throat> Um, did those, those come after MASH or was those before? All that came after MASH. No, I beg your pardon. All that came after, that all came before MASH. Um, I was doing a lot of, some of those were Bob Altman. Bob, Bob Altman directed them, so he hired me smack it into a small role. Because I was more really interested in getting, learning from him about how this new world was going to be in film. Yeah. So I know it sounds a little easy when I say that, but it just happened for me that way. You know, I mean, I'm trying to deal with raising kids and not having money while I have to wait for another job, and I don't know when they're going to come along. So there's a big uncertainty in that profession. You know, um, you're competing with other people. And I didn't really pay much attention to any of that stuff. I just thought I, I, if I got a sandbag, the, the hills, I got, if I can get a job doing whatever I can do for the weekend to feed the kids, and then a good, really great job comes along, and I just got to load them, you know, a load them, and one after another. And, and Alien and Top Gun are, are uh, oh yeah, Mash are both two of the twenty-five great films of the twentieth century, you know, and it's. To mentor with these guys, to work with the directors. Yeah, you watch an actor and you learn from that, but it's really writing and the directing yeah. that brings, opens up the possibilities for the actors to work. But it's really the act, the writer and director to begin with all that. Begin with bugs flying around here. Sorry. That's all right. I'm in Alabama, so I'm right at home. <laughs> I've always thought Norman Lear was a genius. I don't agree with all his all his stuff, but man, uh, just uh, taking taking that that kind of a risk to do all in the family, first of all, and then of course having Carol O'Connor and Gene Stapleton. I mean, my God, you know, all of them, Rob Reiner, Sally Struthers. That that show to this day, if it's on, I'm going to turn it on. I just think, like back in that time, that had to be such a huge deal. I know the network got letters, and you know everybody said that, and but that really was a big deal for the business. I feel like at that time, 
uh, there's certain guys that stand out like that. That just that's if you would want a mentor, it would be somebody kind of ballsy enough, you know, to go anywhere. Because there's no, it's, it's all, it's almost like I feel like there's no ulterior motives or anything with some of those guys. They're just, they're just doing their thing. Uh, maybe the purest form, you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, you mentioned Alien. My God, I. We could go on forever and all the stuff, all the movies. The Alien has like a, I mean, you, like a following. Like a, it's like a pop culture. Well, Top Gun Two is really. Uh, oh yeah, the by original far. Top Gun is is also one of those by far. Uh, kind of, um, it had a big group of people wanting to see. But thirty five years later, what Tom Cruise looks like thirty five years later, you know. Yeah, he can't be the he can't be the pilot that he was. <laughs> so what's he going to be? I don't know. Uh, he he didn't have any no freakouts on set or anything, did he? No yelling at anybody. I don't know. He was always a pretty cool guy. I mean, he was modest. Came from modest circumstances and got lucky early on. He was quite young when he started doing a lot of good work. That was a hell of a movie. That one stands up still. I mean, that's out of all of them. That that or a river runs th- a river runs through it is 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 is, is, is very. It'll hit. It'll get you. You know, it hits you in your heart. I think it does me. Uh, that was me amazing. too. I I don't see all the things I do, and and some I do. Uh, I do see them, but I've never been to one. Uh, that I've been in as many times as I've been to see a river run Zurich, and it moves me deeper on every time I see it. Wow. There's something about every great movie that's in just fully engaging of the imagination, where you can go see it a second time and you go on another level and another level and another level. And that's what you take home. You can't explain it. All this creative stuff, which you do on your guitar when you're, as you go up, you don't know what you're going to do next. You don't think about it. You don't explain it. Mm-hmm. You just do it. Yeah. Very yeah, true. Well, that's where it all starts with the imagination is the daring to take the next step. Yeah, and sometimes it's it's almost like you're being led by something that isn't even there. Maybe it is there, but you you can't see it. It's there for a moment. Yeah, it's little, you know? little, little moments in time. You know, like songwriting. Yeah, I feel like sometimes there's stuff floating around in the air, and it comes out of nowhere, and it's up to you whether to just kind of grab it and pull it down and make something out of it. And then you're like, "What the hell? Where'd that come from?" Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I had a friend, very dear friend, uh, back in the sixties, <clears throat> who, when he was in high school, played the tenor saxophone. I think. Mm. And he just, you know, with all eight fingers he used, and he just wasn't as good as he was on it. The sax, he didn't have the mouth for it, didn't have the lips for it. 
but he wanted to play. And he, took, he just slipped over to the bass, stand-up bass, mm-hmm. and wound up playing for Chet Baker's band when he was 19. And around 21, he'd gone to New York to work in the Bill Evans Trio. I don't know if you remember Bill Evans, but he was a great piano player, trained as a kid to be classical music and just became this uh, other world in, in jazz. And somehow the, the, this friend of mine, Scott, Scott LaFarle, changed his eight fingers to the bass. Mm-hmm. So when they were playing often with one finger or two fingers, yeah. he went to four. Ooh. So he was playing with eight fingers like this, wow. like a saxophone. Can you imagine it? He just, wow. when I first heard him, before I got to be, we came friends, thought, who the hell is this guy? It's Charlie Parker on his face. <laughs> and he was, he died, he ran into a tree and died at 25. And at the time, he was considered the best jazz bassist. You know, and just. Oh, I can't imagine. I yeah. can't imagine. I can't imagine what it would sound like, and I can't imagine how the hell he did it. It just is. That's genius, you know. Yeah, it's just genius that drives you to it. That's. I'm gonna have to go look that up now when we get done with this. I yeah, Scott Lafaro. He died at. You say he died at 25. Is that what you said? Say what? Did you say he died His at name? At 25, did you say? Yeah. Wow. Around 125, 26 maybe, but I think it was that, that time. He'd only, he was just rising, you know. He was just becoming, that's the guy, you, that's the bass player you want to listen to because yeah. he does stuff. And uh, how you get there, I think, well, in this case, it started with having playing one, another instrument, but he knew he had to be in music. Yeah, and the only thing that really he could hug and hold, and do something with was the bass, <laughs> and he just took off with it. That's amazing. Yeah, it's 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 all it's all interwoven, connected. All of it, you know, uh, our, yeah, it it's like little little pieces of a, a big puzzle of all of our lives. I'm, I, the older I get, I'll be I'll be 37 in January. So I'm I know you're thinking, ah, oh, you ain't old. But the older I get, the more I see this coming together. All of it, you know, yeah. personal things, uh, business things. It, it's it's all it's all just right there, and uh, it's music has always been took me to another place since the first note i can ever remember humming in my crib i can remember just feeling that music and it just taking me somewhere else and you can't even describe like you said people don't understand that and they think you're crazy as hell and and it doesn't make sense to a rational person i guess but to or to a logical person but it's uh, it's one of them things. That's the best way you can really say it, I guess. I mean, it can't really be explained. Well, it's that, that thing of you start thinking about you ain't going to be creative. <laughs> right. You just have to do it, you know, and that's that thing that's getting uh, 
sort of like don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing, you know? Yeah. And which Duke Ellington once said. And, yeah. and that's sort of something you have to take in, into your life. It has to be something you feel. And you cannot explain that. No. No, because that's something else. That that's. I mean, there, a story I heard not too long ago was uh, Lawrence Olivier, who is a great English actor, who was being interviewed somewhat like this, and <clears throat> the interviewers asked him about acting in theater. And he said, "You had this gift of being able to move people in the dark of a theater. How how do you get people to?" Uh, when you come to that point, how do, how do you get the people to cry in the, the audience? And he says, well, you, you get to that point, and you don't cry, and they will cry for you. And that's, that's giving the other people, and that's what a good movie is. Don't give them all. Don't start out with the end of the picture. Give them something that takes them, brings them in and say, I want to see where this guy's going. It's yes. so like Citizen Kane. What, what is this old, crazy old, roughy man talking, complaining about? You find out really in the end that it was all of his life, he's, it was as an adult, was not happy. And the only happiness he ever had was used, you know, on this little sled called um, Rosebud. Mm-hmm. And the only way we know is that we see the Rosebud being burned up, you know, when the guy died. And you would get what the whole front was, where he's having fun and loving it, and then he inherits this wealth. Um, it said a lot. That's always going to be timeless. What it said, you know, about be happy. How do you become happy? It's not money is ultimately going to get you there. Mm-hmm. It'll help. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah, no. uh, I've been there eight now, you know. But uh, I mean, my head can't working a lot, but it's all okay, you know. I've had, I've had that life, and I've had a lot of disturbing times in the course of it. But it's all part of the whole thing, you know. You take the worst of it and the best of it, and it all is a river that runs through it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It sure is. And learn from the worst. You know, not, yeah. That's 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 been a key in my my life. Learn from not only mistakes, but learn from why you're experiencing bad things in your life, tragedy that you don't understand, it feels unfair. You know, it's really not uh because it's, that's the selfish part thinking. You know, it's not about it's not about me. This is about the situation or whoever this involves, even though it may be a loved one passing away or something like that. We our our selfish self wants them here still, but that's not that's not how it's going to be. It's not how it's supposed to be. We have to put ourselves aside. I'm still, you know, I lost my mother uh, in May. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I'm still struggling, you know, with that. I do I do okay most days, but then there'll be a day that just kind of hits out of nowhere. 
Um, I'm sure there'll be a bunch of days like that, but it's one of them things we just have to try to try to go on and, and, you know, understand that she, I understand she's in a better place. She's not in this hell that we're all living in still, you know, I'm not saying life is just shitty. I, I don't mean that. I just mean the world, you know, what's going on, what's coming next probably. And all of that. I'm, I'm glad that she's not suffering. Uh, yeah. You just have to, having been here with that, it's, you just have to keep moving. You know, that's the one thing I found out. You just got to keep moving. Yeah. Uh, we're now we're doing a, <clears throat> cause I'm not, I'm, I'm doing more writing, but I also see that in futures in the visual, visual arts, which is the most influential of all media and movies and all of that, but now movies are not going to be what they used to be. I know what they're going to be turning out will be the same aggressive, hostile, angry films with explosions coming up behind the, the actor. <clears throat> and the special effects are worn out now. Same thing. So they're losing their audience, but they're trying to get it back this summer. And we just don't function. I don't function that way. And um, what I do know is the force of it. And the best thing you can do is turn out positive, uplifting stuff for a viewer. Mm-hmm. Let them come to the end of it and say, man, I should try to do that. You know, we're, so we put together a company up here in Seattle that we're pushing out on Stir App, which is owned by Sinclair Broadcasting. And um, it's all uplifting stuff. To diet. We're just getting documentaries. Like great class worker, Dale Shahuli up here. Um, some documentaries on the beginning of Pearl Jam and variety of things, you know, that we're uh, uh, 24 hours of streamlining all this stuff, including chefs up in Canada. One woman chef who goes out and forages in the forest and brings home a whole bunch of stuff that you can eat, and she puts together this great dinner over the barbecue. <laughs> you know, and so this is this is art. Yeah, and it's it's just all of it that we're putting out there is stuff that's been put on the shelf because they didn't have any way of distributing it. Yeah. So now they can go out there and have their stuff exposed and they can make a little bit of money off the shared advertisements that are on the show and on our our channel. It's called Evergreen, by the way. If you want to watch it, I think, I don't know if you have, you have an iPhone, so I'm sure you can look up uh, Stir App and get it, but it's on channel 284, Evergreen. And uh, I, I say this because this is kind of the new world. We know, we know streamlining was not here a year ago. And it's just becoming more uh, against Hollywood's ever coming back the way it came before, was before. And that is uh, everything we see and everything we put out there is something you little fishing. Uh, from Idaho to the Pacific Ocean on some of the greatest rivers along the way. You know, it's it's just a wonderful documentary of touring America. So we're doing all, all of that. And whatever music we can accumulate after, in the second year, we're in just starting our second year with it. But the, a lot of the music that can go concurrent, kind of in, in 
that just makes itself known on a work on a movie or a film only because it was the artist who wrote the film, wrote the music, yeah. was doing it for him, him or herself. And suddenly it applies to someone else's cinematic work. It just comes together because the rhythms, are, they both have good rhythm. Right. I will check it out. And everybody else needs to check that out too. What was that app? Yeah. Yeah. What was the name of it? Uh, Stir, S-T-I-R-R. Yeah. It's owned by, as I said, St. Clair Broadcasting, which is a nationwide. So we're, we're able to show it nationwide. Oh, that's awesome. Through our, our system. That's awesome. How long have you been doing this? It's a year now. That's a year great. this month, yeah. That's great. Just 150 hours. <laughs> oh. Listen, I haven't seen all of it, but everything I've seen, I thought, wow, I want to see all of this, you know. That's that's definitely up my alley. Uh, my wife, by the way, that I was talking about earlier, she freaked out when I when I told her that I was going to have you on because Still Magnolias is by far one of her favorites. She's yeah. she's always saying, "Are you high, Clary?" I mean, all the da- like a day on a daily basis. She says that when when she's trying to tell me I'm crazy or something. Uh, so that and that was a great movie. I mean, oh, that, yeah. my mother loved that movie too, and and it still comes on. We watched it the other day, actually. Uh, did you enjoy working on that movie? Yeah, I did. I had uh, Herb Ross directed that thing, and Shirley MacLaine, of course, was in it. But <clears throat> I had done a film with them in, in the 70s, just prior to Alien, doing Alien, called Turning Point. And it's um, it's about ballet. I never thought a movie like that could be. But it won, it won a couple of Oscars, nominated for three or four, and had... Brishnikov, Mikhail Brishnikov, who is the great dancer, real nice guy, down to earth, came from Russia. This is how he was brought up. And uh, I remember having a little conversation. I thought, well, we, you know, I, I'm going hiking this weekend with some friends who want to come with me. He says, I'd love to, man, but I can't use it. I can't, I don't have the muscles for that. His <laughs> muscles are all, since he was a kid, were trained for leaping in the air. You know, and all this different stuff you get from great artists, you know, talking with uh, Miles Davis, mm. got to know him quite well toward the end of his life, you know. And Very cool. Stuff we, the exchanges like this that we're having about the old days, the guys that are gone yeah. in his case, you know, we, we were talking a lot about he wondered how he got to be as old as he is because of all the stuff he put in his body. And he died a couple of years after that, but uh, all that aside, it's just, you know, there's, we got these things to talk about that uh, make us, uh, these things that we think about, remember, our conversation that we carry, you know, with other people, the exchanges of, you know, you're in the music world and you, you have, you know how it is, you go times where, you, uh, where's my next gig? Yeah, I had that for a long time, you know, about fifteen years when I first fell into the acting thing. I didn't know when I was going to get a job, and I had kids to feed, mm. you know. So 
you just keep moving and you get through it. You keep working on your guitar, you know, and any mathematician out there that's struggling, you got to make it your own. You got to make it your own. Once you do it, someone's going to hear it and say, come on. Dolly, you, did you work closely with Dolly on there? Was she on set a lot? Yeah, we all worked together pretty much. And, you know, I had six strong women, so I just shut up when I'm around them, you know, and just listen uh, to them. There'd be no word in edgewise between all them, uh, I'm sure. You can add nothing as a man, nothing to their conversations. <laughs> no, no, nothing at all. Uh, well, uh, Picket Fence is, is such a great show. And you actually won your, your – you were nominated a bunch of times, but you won an Emmy uh for your character in picket fences i believe didn't you i did yeah that was uh that had to be quite a run how long was that on the air <clears throat> well, that was four years and we collected uh total i think of about 16 uh emmys for that show Amazing. Uh, that guy happens has turned out to be the best writer in television ever, David Kelly. He's just unbelievable. How did you did you know Toby Keith before you did Beer for My Horses? No, no, God, I missed that. that real good guy, man. I just had a good, nice relationship with him. But this happens with other other people's in film. They live somewhere else. I live up here. You know, you just don't live in Hollywood the way you used to. They always assume we all know each other. We don't really because we have families and they're in different parts of the world. But the studios always used to, you know, they hired, they You can sign August. Okay, honey. They signed, uh, they signed up uh, people to be their actors that couldn't go anywhere else. Yeah. But that's, that's long gone. Yeah. This is... You know, uh, you can move somewhere else if you are if you establish yourself in Los Angeles. But a lot of them want to get out of town. Red, Redford never really wanted to live in L.A. He grew up there, but he had places everywhere but there. Yeah. Tom, I think uh, Cruz has a place up in Colorado. That's usually where they stay. I love Colorado. Yeah, that's some different air up in there. That mountain air. Yeah. Well, man, uh, we're going to let you hop off here and go eat supper. We call it supper in Alabama. Tell your wife. <laughs> supper, yeah. <laughs> like supper. the Waltons, you know. Yeah, that's, I grew up with supper. <laughs> modest life that you, you have. Oh. So you yeah. never lose that either. Modest life. And uh, I come from, I come from, I come from a good family. I, you know, I've, yeah, clearly you do. Uh, I just, uh, nothing's ever, I'm just me, you know, I'm just, I, I like the authenticity of having guests on here and just having an authentic conversation. That's one thing I, I like getting across, and that's why I wanted to have you on. I just sent something about you that would be very genuine and authentic. And I think people have, uh, have have seen that and heard it, whether they're watching or listening, because they can do either one. Uh, but anyway, 
Uh, appreciate you coming on and appreciate y'all listening. Do you got a website or can people follow you online uh, to keep up with your stuff that you're releasing on the, on the app? I, you know, I never get into social media. Uh, I'm off. just too busy to better get off. into do that. <laughs> so, you know, and we're so, so busy with, uh, with Evergreen. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that's E V R G R N. All the vowels are all except for the beginning E. But um that's got a lot of stuff that you start getting into it to say, yeah, one after the other. I can't watch it all at once because I've never been one to I'd go to a movie once, except with exceptions. You know, but yeah. I mean, yeah, it's hundred and fifty hours. That'd be a long time. Your butt would be hurting after watching that. We were talking to some natives, native tribes about doing some, getting some videos that they do on their ceremonies, and they have some very heartful um, videos, you know, and um, it's hard to get it because they don't really trust us Europeans, basically, and with good cause. We, leave, we make the future by what we, how we treat one another now. True. Yeah. Well, I, I enjoyed talking with you, and I really got a sense of that when they asked about me getting getting in touch with you, because I, I just, this is the kind of conversation that's really, you get to know one another, who you're talking to. Yeah, I feel like I've known you forever already. <laughs> just very comfortable. Uh, but, uh, well, I really appreciate it, Andy, yeah, you know, that uh, you're able to do this. I'm glad you reached out. We appreciate y'all tuning in to Picking It Out. And we'll see you next time.